I, I want to bring you a, a message that I've called a most beautiful breakthrough. And I don't want to overstate what I'm going to share with you tonight. But I want to make sure I accurately state how important I believe um, the, the substance of what I'm going to share is tonight. Um, when I talk to you about the difference between viewing yourself as a servant of God and a son of God, I can't overstate how important it is that we enter into um, the reality that we are sons more so than we are servants. And I know that's a masculine term, which may feel a little weird, ladies, but it's only as weird as men feel when we're told we're the bride. Okay? So we just got to get used to these, um, these, these references that we think of primarily in gender terms, and we've got to realize they're kingdom terms. Because as all men are part of the bride of Christ, all women in Christ are the sons of God. And oftentimes you'll hear me say sons and daughters, but that's when I'm not talking about this issue of adoption tonight. We're talking about the doctrine of adoption. And we're going to go to an ancient passage written by the Apostle Paul, who is writing to the churches of Galatia. And his purpose in writing these churches is to free them up from religion. The whole purpose of the book of Galatians is Paul as a, a bulldozing apostle coming against all of these inferior tenets of religion that people like to attach themselves to. And he's coming through and he's steamrolling them and he's telling them over and over again, you are sons of God who are free. And that is the theme of the book of Galatians. I have preached through the entire book of Galatians uh, three times since becoming lead pastor back in 2002. That's how important. I preached no other book of the Bible more, verse by verse, than the book of Galatians because one of the strongholds in the Bible Belt, if not the chief stronghold, is the stronghold of religion. Religion poses, raises its ugly head so often, so frequently, and in a way so appealing that multitudes of people that are born again end up becoming servants to religion instead of becoming sons who worship and then also serve God. And so we're going to go into that tonight. I don't know how much I'll unpack tonight. This may be something we do um, for a little while. So um, yeah, let's just get into it. And so Galatians uh, chapter number four, interestingly, I find myself in chapter three, so let me get where you are. Here we go. Paul writes in Galatians 4.1, he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, 
so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Most American evangelical preaching centers around you doing something for God. Now, I'm not saying that we don't serve the Lord, because we do. But that's not our primary source of our identity. True Christianity is primarily about being that results in doing. Religion says... Walking with God is all about doing, and as you do, you will become something. Religion flips it on its head. God says, I'm going to tell you who you are, and then you will, you will be motivated to do what I ask you to do. Religion says, do as much as you can for God, and you'll find out who you are. And because that's been perpetuated generationally in churches in America, most of us, whether we're aware of, of it or not, have been deeply affected by it. It's just kind of in the air. And so it, it's not new because it was also in the air 2,000 years ago in this area of the churches of Galatia. And Paul had to come in and say the difficult things. If you will really want to take an hour and just read the entire book of Galatians sometimes this week, you will see the Apostle Paul using language that would get him fired from most pastorates in modern-day churches. He is forthright. He is challenging. He is borderline provoking in some of the things he says to these people whom he dearly loves. But they don't listen to subtleties. Let me tell you this. When you're coming against the stronghold of religious thought and religious activity, it doesn't go away with subtle hints. It's a stronghold that has to be bulldozed by truth. Sometimes we have to tear down things before we can build up things. Um, I, I, I'm going to get into the text in a minute, but this is, this is my strong confidence that right now, that God is working in the church in this region, not a church, not a couple of churches, but the church in this region, and he is offering us a, a deeper clarity and confidence in our identity in Jesus because we have to have that before we can be entrusted with the revival that he wants to send. We will not serve our way into revival. It won't happen that way. We will receive revival because it's already available, but it is only going to come to the church when the church recognizes who he or she is in Christ. And so I want to help us along that way tonight and talk to you about what it means to be his son. And so let's look at it. Paul's using an illustration that was common in his day 2,000 years ago. The illustration is that of a wealthy head of household who has servants and has children. And in those homes, this is, the, this is kind of the, the, the situation. In those homes, this man would have his children, born to him by his wife in a Roman household, his, his children would be raised up alongside of the children 
of the servants. In the Roman Empire, there were more slaves than at any other time in human history. And these slaves were oftentimes mistreated, but they were also oftentimes brought into household and treated and provided for in great ways. And so the picture in this is a man who has a household who takes care of his servants, and his son is being brought up alongside of the servants. And, and this is the illustration that Paul is giving, and it's important that we know that because it will give a greater sense to what he's meaning when he says, in verse number one, he's speaking of the limitations of his son. He says this, I mean that the heir, the son of the householder, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. So I want you to think with me. You've got the, the child of the slave and the child of the, the householder. I know these are delicate terms and they, they provoke us inside. We're talking about uh, a slavery in the Roman Empire and it was common. Some people say estimates of two-thirds of the population were engrossed in Roman slavery. They had sold themselves into slavery or they had indebted themselves into slavery. And so you've got the son of the householder growing up with the son of the slave. And as long as that child is a little child, there is literally no functional difference between the child who is the heir of his father's inheritance and the child that is the son of the slave. There's no difference. They're brought up the same way. They are treated the same way in the sense of that they are provided for, but they are instructed, they are reprimanded, they are being uh, disciplined in life. And so when we think about this, Paul's going to open this up and show us what he's meaning here. But this is what I want you to recognize. In this paradigm, the heir to his father's riches, his father's estate, he has the potential to his father's wealth, but he currently has no possession of it. He has zero ability to decide for himself. His life is dictated to him. He's an heir to all that the father has, but his life is dictated to him. He has limited freedom due to his insight as a little child into his father's reality. In other words, he can't fathom the reality of his father, and therefore he is very limited in his freedom. He's a little boy. He can't be entrusted with adult freedom. And he's protected as a little child from error by the rules of his father. Why is that? Because he is not mature enough to be governed by the relationship with his father. Now, all of this is going to begin to make sense in a minute, but I want you to get the picture that Paul is painting because he's actually talking about people that are bound in religion. He's comparing them in their religion instead of them being free to operate as the sons of the father. They're no different than they would be if they were a slave or a servant in the household. So we go down into verse number two. What else do we need to know about this little child? Well, the Bible speaks of his leaders, the leaders of this little child. It says he's under guardians and he's under managers until the date that is set uh, by his father. So both in Roman law and the Hebrew law, it, it kind of, the, the Roman law was that, that these children the, the heir to the father's throne, he's the firstborn, it is all going to be his. That's just the way it was in the Roman Empire. But at this point, the little boy is being raised by others. He's being instructed by others. He's being disciplined by others. There was very little access to his own father. 
His father spawned him, but his father didn't raise him. He was raised up until a point in time by tutors, by teachers, by, by the pedagogues that would take care of him. And so we are instructed here again that that is very much like those that are under religion. They are kept in line. They are trained not by a relationship with the father, but by those who make rules for them. Now we're going to go a little bit further. Stay with me here. It'll start making sense in a moment. In verse number three, we see his learning. Paul now starts to connect it to the people reading the letter to the churches of Galatia. He says, in the same way, in the same way that that little boy is basically like the servant, like the slave, under the guardianship of others, in that same way also, Paul says, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, Paul is making a reference here to those people that are reading and how they lived before Jesus Christ was brought to them, before they understood the gospel. Paul is taking for granted the reality that most of the people that he's writing to had a religious background. It was epidemic uh, in their culture. And a lot of them would have been disciples of pagan religions. But even those pagan religions had rules and disciplines and modes of worship and, and different conscripts and liturgies that they had to go through, all in order to connect with some god out there. And so Paul is saying both to the Jew who was trained and brought, supposedly being brought to the Messiah through the law, he's saying this, he's saying, we were just like the little boy who was the true heir to his father's house, but we were basically keeping ourselves as children. We were enslaved, we were instructed, we were under the, the thumb of others who kept us in line through teachings, through commandments, through disciplines. Paul says, we were subject to the elementary principles of the law. Now, he mentions this same principle to the church at Colossae. Let me read you these verses. They won't be up on the screen, but let me read you these from Colossians 2.20. When he's talking about these elementary principles of the world, he mentions again in Colossians chapter 2, in verse number 20, 21, and 22, he says, Since you died with Christ to the elementary spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to them, do you submit to these rules? And he, he classifies the rules as this. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then he adds in verse 22, These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with their use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. All right, let me take a moment because I know this is like a lot of stuff right off the bat. Paul is saying this. The rules, the disciplines, the laws, whether it be Jewish law or these pagan things that we were bound to when we were still in our, our pagan state before we came to Christ, they were all religious things and they could never, ever bring us into a state of sonship. They could never make us aware, joyfully, blissfully, inwardly aware that we are the son, the firstborn son of the father. It was the firstborn son that got the, the, the lion's share of the inheritance. And so what Paul is saying is all of these rules, religious rules, don't touch that, don't taste that, don't handle that. 
He would go on to the church at Colossae, and he would say, why do you let people bring you under bondage to calendar dates and dietary laws and these kind of rituals and washings? All of these rules, and there is something in the human heart that is addicted to being able to do something to make us feel closer to God. And there's, there's this inner checklist that most of us are born with, that if we will behave rightly, if we will accomplish enough, if we will be better, if we will try harder, if we will go longer, if, we will, if, if our blossom is bigger than the other person's blossoms, then God will say that we're right with him. And it's the nature of the religious impulse within all of us to do something in order to feel like we're right with God. And there's a word for that, and it's a hard word for us to swallow because we never think it, it applies to us. What is the word? It's idolatry. That if we build a monument of something we can do, our own personal private tower of Babel that will reach up to the heavens and say to God, here we are, notice us. It's idolatry. And Paul is saying to them, as to the degree that this, this little child was, was bound to the, the oppression, uh, the, not the oppression, but the subjugation of these laws and these teachers and these instructors, it's the same way religion seeks to confine us and suppress us and keep us in bondage. So well, the question would be, what do we do? Because what Paul is telling us is, hey, Christian, you're not the little child. You're, you're, the, you're the adopted, fully entitled heir to the Father because you have, as a joint heir with Jesus, all that the Father says Jesus has. You already have it. You already possess most of the things that you think you're striving for in your relationship with the Father. That is the, the irony of religion. Religion, when the religious spirit invades a church, a ministry, or a Christian's life, or a family, it, 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 it says to us, you've got to keep working to get it. And the gospel says, no, Jesus worked for it, earned it before the Father, paid for it on your behalf, and gave it to you when he gave you himself. Except religion doesn't like that. Because religion waves the flag and says, now wait a minute. Won't that lead to kind of a superficial, flippant approach to the Christian life? Aren't people going to go bonkers and indulge themselves if you tell them that they don't have to work for what God has already given? Well, let me just answer that question since supposedly you're asking it. Um, true Christians won't. True Christians don't say, oh, grace it's really that good. It's really that big. It's really that glorious. It's really that awesome. Ha ha. God can't do anything about it because he's given me grace. I think I'll go sin. True Christians can't do that. People ask me all the time. I know I'm kind of running rabbit trails here, but I really want to hit this for a moment. The big debate always is, hey, Jeff, uh, the Assemblies of God merged with the Baptist Church to bring about New Bridge Church. Don't the Baptists believe in that once saved, always saved? And don't the assemblies of God people believe that you can lose it when you commit a sin? Y'all are all like, come on, man, what you going to say? What you going to say? <laughs> well, let, let me just tell you this. I have never signed off on the flippant way of saying once saved, always saved. And let me tell you why. Because that seems to indicate that you pray a prayer, you get dunked, you say you're saved, you live a hellish life, and then you go to heaven when you die. I don't believe that for a second. 
I believe that is a counterfeit gospel. But neither do I believe that a genuinely converted person who enters into an undefined weakness or sin or a besetting sin or even a recurring sin, when their heart is grieved and they are disciplined and corrected by a loving father who will not let that child of his enjoy that sin, I don't believe that they lose it. This is what I believe. I believe that when a true Christian sins, it first grieves the heart of God because the, the, the God who has that heart lives in that Christian. It then begins to grieve that Christian. And God will discipline them and discipline them and discipline them to bring them to repentance. And if they choose not to repent, it's not that they forfeit their salvation. God will take them home. God will give them a premature ejection from planet Earth because they refuse to repent. Now, the issue here is this. We are to serve the Lord, but never out of fear. Never to get something. Never because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't serve him. Never to keep ourselves in his good graces. We're talking about motivation here. Friends, motivation is everything. Why do we serve God? Because we love him. Why do we love him? Because he really loves us. And so because we are objects of his affection and his love, and we do not any longer view ourselves as servants, but we are sons, we want to serve and please and glorify and make great the name of our Father. And so the motivation shifts, and all of the sudden... We find ourselves not as slaves who fear what will happen if they don't please the master, but as sons who know the father is already pleased with him, and therefore we want to do those things that bring peace, or not peace, but bring joy to his heart. It is a reciprocal thing. You love us, that makes us want to do anything that you want us to do for your glory. Now, do you see that there's a difference? Can we, can we recognize that? I, I, I even sense just right now in the room that there are people who are afraid not to serve God because they'll lose their identity, they'll lose their peace, they'll lose their sense of acceptance from God because they base it inwardly, they base their sense of God's pleasure on their lives, they base it on what they're doing for him. And if they're not doing something for, them, for him, they're afraid that there'll be nothing in them for him to love because they believe that he loves them based on what they do, not based on what Jesus has done for them. And so when we're moving into this, and let's do move a little bit further into it, let's see what the antidote is to religion. Because we move from this little child who is nothing different than the slave. But God has a desire to bring him out of that slave mentality and into the sonship mentality. How does he do it? He does it through the living Lord, through Jesus. Look in verse number four. When we read this verse, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption of sons. Let me break this down. Because it starts out when the fullness of time had come. When, when we're talking about Jesus coming, I want you to recognize that there, there was precision in the Father sending the Son at the time that he did. It says, when the fullness of time had come, what does that indicate? It indicates intentionality from the Father. 
that the coming of Jesus, every December 25th, we celebrate the incarnation, the first coming, the advent of Jesus Christ. And we do that every single year. But, but I want you to recognize that although it didn't happen actually on December 25th, we celebrate it then. That's not when Jesus actually came. But when the fullness of time had come, it was intentional. God waited until the time that Jesus came on purpose. Why? Let me tell you a little bit what was going on in the world at the time where the Messiah originally came. Idolatry had been finally removed from Israel, from the Jewish people. They had been captive in Babylon. In Babylon, they had been broken. They had come out of Babylon for a few centuries, and now they were completely what we call monotheistic. They were now no longer worshiping other gods plus Yahweh. They were Yahweh only, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Israel had been broken from their idolatry and their worship of other pagan deities. And so also, in that, now there had been, by the time Jesus came as a baby, places of worship had been erected. What are those places called? They were worship and instruction. They were called synagogues. So there was a systematic teaching. The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, was complete. It was now compact. They had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. And so there was a systematic teaching from the Jewish Bible about the Messiah. And that his coming was being proclaimed and preached and taught by Hebrew rabbis and scholars and teachers. And so that was going on at that time. Now, in the kingdom at that time... Uh, in the Roman Empire, the common language was actually Greek. Greek was spoken all over the known world at that time. And so people from different areas had a common language that would often unite them. And so when Jesus was coming and the message had to be proclaimed, there was now a, a language that it could be proclaimed in that would reach the mass multitudes of people. Also, what we know in history is the Pax Romana, the enforced peace that the Roman Empire put upon the world, it created both uh, environmental and financial and social stability. So there were no massive wars going on. Why? Because Caesar and those that led in the Roman Empire enforced peace on the world. And so there was a certain amount of outward stability that was going on at the time that Christ was born. Additionally, there was the creation of the Roman highway system so that people could travel farther and longer and with much more ease. And that was going to be essential for the propagation of the gospel into other places and then ultimately know this that for 400 years in the jewish nation in israel there had been no open prophetic word malachi was the last prophet in israel to speak until the time where john the baptist appeared on the scene 400 years later so what what importance is that the people were starving for from our word from their god 400 years of no open prophecy, no fresh revelation, no rhema word from the Lord. And so the people were hungry for Messiah. And now we are able to look back and say, yes, the fullness of time had come. You see, my friends, when we read over little phrases in our Bible, it, just, it can look like words on paper, but if we'll slow down, we'll say, well, what was that fullness? And it's all of that I just talked about and more. So that was when the Lord came. But how did he come? Look again at verse number four. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, this would be the Christmas message that we would share every year. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The incarnation, you have both there. As, as the divine son, God sent forth his son, the preexistent second person of the Godhead Trinity, the son of God, 
God sent him, the divine son, and as the divine son, Jesus alone had the nature for the acceptable sacrifice. Had to be perfect blood. Had to be a perfect sacrifice. And as the divine son, he alone could supply that eventual sacrifice that would occur 30 some odd years after his birth. But it also speaks of him being the human son. He was not only God sending his son, but he was born of a woman. And so as the human son, he had the nature for the appropriate substitute. As the divine son, he was the right sacrifice, the only sacrifice. But as the human son, he was the acceptable substitute because he had to take on flesh to become like us, to endure all temptations like we did, yet he without sin. And so he lived his life perfectly, always doing those things that please the father. And so the father looked at him and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so Jesus lived his life, and when he gave that life on Calvary, when he stretched out his arm and took those iron spikes in his wrist and in his feet with a crown of thorns on his head, he was our redeemer. He was our substitute. Friends, he was not only perfectly God, but he was perfect as a human. He's the only human that has ever walked beneath the sun of whom it could be said he never, ever once sinned. And so he was the divine son who could be the sacrifice. He was the human son that could be the substitute. That is how the Lord came. He came as deity placed within a womb and came forth into this world that he might redeem those like us. Why did he come? Verse number five, there it is. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, we finally get to the word, the adoption as sons. only took 30 minutes to get to my my main point. Here we are. To redeem those who were under the law. Remember the law, the the master, the one that kept us suppressed, the, the religion, even God's holy law was not enough to bring about the redemption of mankind, not because the law was wrong, but because nobody could ever live up to it. And so now that law had held us down. We were captive to the law. We were condemned by the law. We were judged by the law. We were enslaved by the law because its commands upon us, its demands upon us could not be met. And yet Jesus came and fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of it. He pleased the Father in that he fulfilled the Father's perfect will as expressed in all of the Jewish law. And Jesus came to redeem all who were under that law and any lesser law. Um, Redemption sets us free from slavery and from the demands and the penalties of the law. When, When you see that word redemption in your Bible, it's a very picturesque word it represents literally an auction of roman slaves roman slaves that had no power had no vote had no say they would be brought to open market they would be examined and somebody would buy that slave and that slave would be owned in the roman empire by another person and the redeemer the redeemer picture is that the redeemer comes and the redeemer says It indeed is a slave. It indeed is powerless. This human being can do nothing for himself, can do nothing for herself. 
I will purchase this slave and the slave will be mine. And then the redeemer receives that purchase price and then says to the slave, you are free. I set you free. You do not belong to your old master. I have purchased you. I have paid for you. I have rights to tell you and declare over you that you have been redeemed. You are set free. There is no penalty. You are not guilty if you go your own way. You are not going to be chased. You're not going to be pursued. You can never be a slave again. You will not be condemned. I have purchased you. I have paid the price. And in my sovereign choice as your owner, I now set you free. That's a picture of what the Lord did for you. Now, most every Christian understands that. Most every Christian understands, I have been judicially, legally, forensically set free from the penalty of my enslavement to sin. Most every Christian believes that. All Christians should believe it, that they should know, I am no longer guilty before God. I am no longer condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free in Christ Jesus. We are accepted in Christ Jesus. We are complete in Christ Jesus. Almost every Christian will say amen to that. But that's not the end of the process that God has for us. Because the joy and the beauty and the vigor of life, the power of the Christian life, the freedom of the Christian life, the, the, um, the inhaling of the Christian life will not find you if all you view yourself as a slave who has been forgiven. If that's all it is for you, then you're living, you're coming up short in what God has given you. you say, well, Jeff, what is the other part? The other part is the adoption. The other part is sonship. The other part is what I believe most of the Christians I've met in my life still don't quite get. So let's look at it. It says, to redeem you from under the law so that cause you are redeemed, effect that you might receive adoption as sons. Where redemption sets us free from slavery and from the penalty of the law, adoption welcomes us as sons with all privileges afforded to the mature sons of God. What is the picture here? The only reason that a wealthy Roman householder would ever adopt one of his servants or slaves would be because he had no son of his own. And so therefore, he would choose out of the slaves, he would say, I need an heir for all of my riches, for all of my wealth, for my family name, in order that the work of I invested myself in perpetuates itself beyond my life. I need an heir, I need a son. But my wife and I, we have no firstborn son. Therefore, I adopt this servant and he becomes my son. And at that very moment, that adopted son, it becomes the full heir to everything that his new father has granted him. He receives everything that would have gone to the firstborn son had there been one. And the picture in this illustration is that you are that son. Why do I not say sons and daughters here? Let me give you just a little tidbit from the Roman Empire. Daughters were never heirs. That's the way it worked back then. Write your congressman. I'm just giving you biblical history. They were never heirs. 
it always had to go to a son. So when Paul is saying this, and by the way, in uh, the chapter before, I think, in Galatians chapter 3, I believe is where he says, in Christ there is neither male nor female. That's the point he's making. We have equal status. So, daughters of God, you are sons of God. My sister, you are sons of God. And therefore, you have joint airship with Jesus Christ. Now, the, the deal is this, and here's what's amazing in the Roman Empire. Did you know an adopted son was more secure in his inheritance than was a natural-born son? A natural-born son could have his inheritance revoked based on what he did. If he disgraced the father's name, it could be revoked and passed on to another son. An adopted son, by Roman law, could never have his inheritance revoked. Because he had been granted and purchased and, and brought into the family by decree, he could never have his inheritance revoked. And that speaks over you. That you as a son of God are a joint heir with Jesus Christ via the, the adoption that God has placed on you. Jesus earned it all. Jesus earned it. Listen to me. Jesus lived out life as, a, as the divine human. He lived it out, and the Father, it's the only person the Father has ever said this about. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus secured it. We are adopted by the Father through Jesus. I'm going to make a bold statement here that will challenge some of you, but I, 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 just, I challenge you back to disprove it scripturally. Everything Jesus has, you have. You are not divine, but you are adopted, and you are a joint heir in Jesus. You are human, but you are a redeemed human. You are an adopted son, and everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. So, Jeff, well, what do we do with that? Well, lots of stuff. I'm going to give you as much as I can um, in the remaining time we've got. But what I'm trying to, this is what I'm trying to, 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 I'm trying to empower you. I'm trying to counteract the years of religious shame heaped upon you, legalistic performance, the never enough, the you shoulda, you coulda, but you didn't sermons that you've heard your whole life, and the sense of layers of guilt and shame, and, and you've got to do more, and you've got to do more, and then God will feel this certain way about you. It's straight from hell, straight from hell, but emanating from pulpits ad nauseum, they're everywhere. So why am I passionate about this? Because I, I, I just think it's the Spirit of God in me that those that Jesus purchased to redeem, he also purchased to adopt so that we would know that we're not primarily servants who have a technical position as a son, but we are actually sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus. That's your identity. Your identity is not where you live or what you wear or the color of your skin or what somebody said about you when you were five or somebody did to you when you were 10. Your identity is not the house that you live in. The, your identity is not even your, your personality. Those are aspects. Your identity is in the eternal son of God. You are God's son. And if we will believe that, it will affect everything. Our minds our emotions, our relationships, our life trajectory, our purposes, our ability to rest. Religious people can't rest. 
Religious people have to always be doing the next thing to make sure God's still happy with them for the next 30 minutes. And God just comes in and says, oh, you're my son. I gave you my best in the very first moment. You already have what you're toiling for. Why don't you rest and trust and let me allocate it to you as we grow more intimate with each other? So let me get down to these last things. Being a son affects your mind. And until, I I believe this, I think these are intertwined. I want to be wise how I say this. Let me just let the scriptures speak. The little child, the living Lord, and then the liberated sons. Look at our new relationship. Because you are sons. I've already hit that like over and over and over again. But it's in your Bible. Not because you're going to be sons. Right now. You are a son of God. Chosen. Welcomed. Adopted. Established. Empowered. You're not under some teacher, some manager, some lesser guardian. Adopted sons are mature. You, you have it. You say, I don't feel mature. Well, that's okay. Your feelings are lying to you again. Because your position is that you, are, you have inherited the position as a mature son of God. You see, when you start believing your identity, you'll start acting like it. The story is told of Queen Elizabeth when she was a little girl, and they were just beginning to tell her who she was. She did not yet know she was in line to become the Queen of England. She's just a little girl. And somebody finally told her, it was actually one of her guardians, told her, Elizabeth, when you grow up, you will be queen. That's her identity in that, in that, in that realm. And she said this, little girl, she said, well, if I will be queen, then I shall be good. Identity breeds activity. Because of who I am, this is the way I will live. A little six, seven-year-old Queen Elizabeth said that long before she became the queen. This is what we need to say. Because I am a son, I will live this way. Not I will live this way in hopes that I will one day be an acceptable son. Do you follow me on that? You, You may think I'm splitting a hair, but I'm telling you, some of your very futures and lives and your peace and your joy and your understanding and your release in the kingdom depends on you letting go of that religious state, that guilt state, that performance orientation, and you saying, no, my identity, I already have it all. Therefore, I can be free to live as I should. And so we are sons. Now, verse number six, the second place I wanted to get to, and I'm already out of time, but you know how it works around here. Our new intimacy, and this is really what you're craving. This is what all of us are craving in the core of our being. We are craving a deeper intimacy with God. We may not be able to articulate it, describe it. We may not even know how how it occurs, but we all want closeness to God, a deepening closeness. And it's not even up for vote. Every Christian wants this. How do I know? My Bible tells me right here. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, The cry of the Son of God is Abba. It is literally, and you know this, an Aramaic term. 
The common language of Jesus' day in Palestine was Aramaic. And the Aramaic cry here that Paul gives to Greek-speaking Galatians, he uses the term because it was Jesus that used it. Jesus did not approach God the Father the way that everybody else did. Jesus was radically different. When he called God my Father, my Abba, using that Aramaic term, it was scandalous. Nobody talked to God like that. Jesus did because he was modeling intimacy with the Father. And he taught us to pray that way. So some people think it's a Pentecostal kind of thing. Oh, you're saying Abba. Why don't you say God? Why don't you say Father? Why don't we say it all? Let's just use them all. But I'm going to tell you, Abba is a term of endearment. And the Bible says this, that the Holy Spirit who lives inside every son of God is crying out, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. He is longing through you longing for more closeness, longing for greater revelation, longing for deeper intimacy. And the beauty is, is that longing is just giving a self-expression because the spirit in you knows that you can have it. You can have that intimacy. You can have it. But the Lord will bring you out of your religion. He won't share intimacy with you if you cling to your tutors, your guardians, and your religion. He won't. He, he, he wants you all to himself. And so if we will ever step into the courage to not care what anybody thinks, to not care what our, our former pastor that maybe was a good person, but he was wrong on this thing when he saddled us with do's and don'ts and this and that, if we will just have the courage to press in and say, Abba, I want you. I'm pressing in, I'm coming near, I'm drawing close. And every time you do that, he says, I'm drawing near to you. I'm pressing into you. I'm coming close to you. You see this intimacy. By the way, Paul would say it again to the church at Rome in chapter 8. Let me read this. All who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So all sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. We're not voting on that. That's in your Bible. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, Paul wrote it to the churches of Galatia. Paul wrote it to the church of Rome. Why? Because it's important. It's not just for a couple of people. It's for all of us that the Holy Spirit is working in you to breed primarily the intimacy with the Father that the Spirit himself craves through you. And all the religious stuff that gets thrown in your way just obscures this great Abba Father whose arms are wide open to you. There is a place for disciplines in the Christian life. I don't want you to hear me say that there's no place for discipline. Disciplines serve the purpose of intimacy and worship. Disciplines on their own do not breed intimacy and worship. But they help the worshiper. Some of us have been taught, well, if we just won't do this, and if we'll just stop doing this, and if we can just do this five days in a row, then we'll feel God. It's just wrong. God does not drag his children back to performance when he sent his son to die so that they'd never have to try to perform for him. 
Religion is always the voice that says, it's never enough. Do better, try harder, go longer, go faster, blossom bigger. That's always religion. So I'll get down to this last thing, and I am, I'm done. So, so here's, here's your new privilege. Only if you'll believe this. And if you don't believe this, there'll always be religious stuff for you to cling to. But if you want to be free, you have to say, I will be free. I am free, therefore I will live freely. Here's your new privilege. So, you are no longer a slave. Did you ever wonder where that song came from? It's biblical. We're no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir, very simply, is the individual that receives the inheritance. Your inheritance is not simply in heaven. You are an heir right now. Oh yeah, there is an inheritance reserved for us that fadeth not away in heaven. I get that. But my friends, are we really going to wait till we get to, do we have to die before we enjoy God? Do we have to die before we start walking in the riches of the inheritance that is given to the saints? You see, the scripture speaks, uses these phrases, the riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the riches of his goodness, the riches of his wisdom. And then it speaks of all the riches of God that are in Christ Jesus, which riches include salvation, protection, mercy, manifold promises, abundant provision, victory, stability, wisdom, purpose, power, love, discernment, boldness, courage, and compassion. And because you didn't get that, I'm going to say them again. This is yours. This is yours. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do the song and dance before the Almighty to get his attention so that you might get a little chunk of what he's saying. This is yours already. What is it? Salvation, protection, mercy, promises, provision, victory, stability, wisdom, purpose, power, love, discernment, boldness, courage, and compassion. It's all yours. If you'll believe it, you'll experience it. If you keep thinking it's for the other son, then it will always be slightly beyond your fingertips. So what is my point as I close right here? My point is this. God says this is who you are. Stop being afraid to live it. We are no longer slaves to fear. Fear is what keeps you from walking in your inheritance now. So I'm going to bless you as you stand up. If you're physically able to stand, let me close with this blessing. On those that are here, those that will watch on TV, those that will listen on the internet, I'm just going to bless you. For, if you believe, I just want you to put yourself in a posture of receiving. Father, on the authority of your word, I just speak a pastoral blessing over those that are saying yes to you right now. That we are the sons of God, we are not slaves. It is our joy to serve our Father, but Lord, we take our identity in our sonship, not our servanthood. And Lord, I bless those that are saying yes to you right now with the ability to sense this night and in days to come an elevation of intimacy 
that you are not grading them, you are not checklisting them, you are not scorekeeping them, but you have accepted them, beloved them, and completed them because of the work of your son on their behalf, that they are now joint heirs with Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that we will not be afraid to be bold in our claiming of the riches that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. We honor you by believing that what you say is ours is actually ours, and we press into it. Help us through our awkwardness with it. Help us, Lord, through our our hesitancy. But, Lord, do not let us draw back into fear. We will not be little slave children. Lord, we will be the adopted sons of God for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen, 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 and amen. God bless you. Hallelujah.